Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2? We're going to look at verses 10 to 18 this morning. Now, this particular text that we're going to look at this morning is a very interesting one, talking about the person of Jesus Christ and his role in our life as believers. And it was meant to be an encouragement to the early church, and I'm praying that it will be an encouragement to all of us as we look at it this morning, too. So let me read for us chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that today as we look at this wonderful passage that talks about Jesus Christ and his relationship with us, I pray that it would strike us in a new way, a fresh way even, that we would hear these words of Scripture that we have read before and that you would impress upon our heart just what it is that you want us to take away today. Father, minister to your people. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today we're looking at a passage that has been a source of great encouragement to believers in all generations. It's a text that talks about Jesus' solidarity with his people. And it seems that the author of Scripture here is, uh, the author of Hebrews, is addressing a question that had come up, an objection that people had to Jesus Christ. And the objection was this, that the idea of a crucified Savior was scandalous in the ancient world. I mean, Greeks prized wisdom, and so they valued scholars and people who could speak well with rhetoric or philosophers. Rome, they valued power. I mean, Roman leaders were uh, generals who rode in chariots, or they were their emperors who ruled with power over this empire. Even the Jews believed that the Messiah, when he came, would also be a conquering hero who would restore Israel to the pinnacle, not to be oppressed by others, but to rule. They couldn't imagine a crucified Savior. Didn't the Scripture say, for example, in Deuteronomy 21, that cursed is everyone who dies on a tree? And they could not reconcile that idea of a crucified Savior. 
But what does the Apostle Paul say? In 1 Corinthians 1, 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. They knew that. Here we are. We are preaching Christ crucified. Even today, there are people in our world who struggle with that, who think that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, but how could he be God? And if he was God, why did he die, or how could he die? Muslims today will accept Jesus as a prophet, but not as God, and they wrestle with the question, how could a holy God take on corruptible human flesh? And maybe some in the house church that the writer was addressing were struggling with that issue too. And as they were suffering from persecution themselves, they wondered, can Jesus really help me in my time of need? Well, the author of Hebrews shows us that rather than being a disqualification, Jesus' humanity is fitting. That's what he says here. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God would do it this way. It was appropriate, that word means, and what he'll argue is that it was even necessary for Jesus to be a suffering servant. His humanity is one of the things that makes him such a wonderful Savior. And what we're going to look at this morning is that in this text, there are four word pictures that describe the relationship that Jesus has with his people. And each of these are beautiful. You can spend a whole message on each one. But we're just going to move through this, and I'm going to touch on these different things that are said about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is our trailblazer. And we see that in verse 10. When he says that it, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. It describes Jesus here as the author of our salvation, but that word author can be a little misleading to us. I mean, we think of an author as someone who writes a book. I mean, that's just the natural kind of thought that comes to our mind. But the word in Greek, archegos, can be translated as a leader or an originator, author in that sense of an originator or a founder, but it can also be translated as a pioneer or a trailblazer. And I like that word trailblazer here. I think that is a good one because Jesus didn't just write about or tell us about salvation. He did something about it. He entered into our world to accomplish our salvation. Now think about that. I mean, what is a trailblazer? If you go back in American history and you think about those pioneers or those who were trailblazers, one example is the Wilderness Road, one of the most famous roads in American history. It went from Fort Chiswell in Virginia through the Cumberland Gap into Kentucky. And it was Daniel Boone who was asked to carve out this new road. He was following Indian trails that have been used for centuries. But he blazed a trail through the wilderness into central Ohio, and then later that road would be extended to the falls of the Ohio in Louisville. And he blazed a trail that others would follow for over 50 years 
as they journeyed west. Well, Jesus Christ, our Savior, blazed the trail of salvation that we can now follow. He's the one who accomplished and opened the doors to heaven so that we, through faith in him, could have eternal life. But to be able to do that, he needed to enter into our world. He needed to become like us. And that's why the scripture says it was fitting that God did it this way. He tells us that our Savior, our trailblazer, was made perfect through suffering. Now that's an interesting term. And when he says he was made perfect through suffering, it doesn't mean that he was made morally perfect. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. He never sinned. But he was made perfect in this way. And that by becoming human, taking on human flesh, he experienced the things that we experience in this life. He knew what it was to suffer from pain or sorrow or fatigue or rejection and to be falsely accused. He knew what it was to be hungry or thirsty, weary, or to suffer under temptation. It was fitting because he opened the way to bring many sons to glory. And I love that expression. I mean, Jesus' death and resurrection was no small thing. By accomplishing what he did, he opened up this way that many would follow. Not a few, but many would come to know him as Savior and Lord. They use the term sons here in the scripture. And in our age, you know, where we're trying to be politically correct about how we say things, or sometimes we want to change words in terms of gender, he opened the way so that sons and daughters could come into a relationship with him. But the reason the scripture uses sons here is because in that context, to be a son also had to deal with privilege and the inheritance that one would receive. And so we are all called sons of God in that sense that are here to inherit what he has for us. And what does he have for us? He opened the way to bring us into glory. Into glory. Just as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and he is experiencing all the glory and wonder of that place, he's going to bring us there too. And we will experience the glory and the joy of heaven with him. That's wonderful. That's great news to a church that is suffering and to individuals who are struggling. Secondly, he'll tell us that Jesus is our brother. And we see that in verses 11 to 13. That both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. We belong to the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, and that is remarkable. The writer draws on two Old Testament passages here to make his point, and both of these texts are messianic, and they would have been understood that way by the Hebrews, by the early church that was reading this. The first quote that he gives us comes from Psalm 22, uh, verse 22. And Psalm 22 is a remarkable psalm written by David, and yet it expresses so clearly what happened to Jesus when he was crucified. 
written a thousand years before Jesus would die, written before crucifixion was a normal means of execution in the Roman world, David, speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit, nailed it. I mean, you look at that text, and it begins with the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The words that Jesus quoted on the cross. It talks about being mocked and insulted by men. That this man who was being treated in this way felt like his bones were out of joint. His hands and his feet were pierced. His garments were divided up by men who were casting lots for them. All of those things are foretold there. And so when the early church thought of Psalm 22, they heard Jesus speaking in that psalm. It was the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to them. And so when he quotes verse 22, it is Jesus who is saying, I will declare your name to my brothers. And in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. It's as though what he's saying here, it's as though Jesus comes and he stands in the midst of our fellowship and he says to you, I want to tell you about my father. And it's not saying he declares my father's name to the world here. No, this is a great privilege. He comes to his church, to the people who believe in him and have placed their trust in him. He says, I want to tell you about my father and I want to tell you about his love for you and his compassion for you. And here is this church that's struggling and they hear those words. And Jesus is saying that in the presence of the congregation, that's the church, I will sing your praise. I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful, rich text that he is talking about there. And then secondly, the other passage he quotes from is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. And here, this is a section again that is profoundly messianic. Isaiah 7 is where you have the prophecy of the virgin birth and that they would call his name Emmanuel. And in chapter 9, you have that great text that we hear every Christmas, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called the Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And right there in chapter 8, there's a very interesting story that is told. And it's about Isaiah and his sons. And Isaiah was called by God to be a witness to a stubborn and obstinate people. And Isaiah was told specifically for his two sons to give them some rather unusual names that were very significant in meaning. One of his sons would be called Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a mouthful. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I, he probably called him Maher for short a lot of times. But it means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And it was a warning to the nation of Israel about this dominant power in the Middle East, Assyria, that was going to come and sweep over the land and would destroy Syria and would destroy the northern tribes of Israel and come to the very gates of Jerusalem, but no more. They would come in might and power, and it was a warning, unless you repent, this is what's going to happen. But his other son was called Shir Yashub, Shir Yashub, which means a remnant 
shall return. God was foretelling what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. That day would come when later Babylon would come in judgment, carry them away, but a remnant would return and survive. God would keep his promise and God would be faithful. And so here in the midst of that suffering is Isaiah who comes and who says to God, I will trust you. And he says to God, here am I and the children you have given to me. It's like Isaiah is standing there with his son saying, here they are. Here we are, Lord, and we will trust you. I know it's not going to be easy. I know the way is going to be hard. I know there's going to be suffering along the way, but we will put our faith in you. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is that he is saying now, this is Christ who is speaking to us as a church. This is Christ who is speaking to you as individuals going through your, child, your trials. And he is saying to you that I will trust you. God, I trust you in my trials as a suffering servant. And I want you as my children, as my family, in the body of Christ to trust me in the things that you are going through in this world. And it's as though Jesus comes and he stands among us in the congregation, he puts his hands on our heads, and he says, here am I and the children that you gave me. And he will bring us to glory. Those were powerful promises that still apply in the way that Jesus loves us. I mean, three things that I take out of that. One is how amazing it is that Jesus declares the character of God to his brothers and sisters in the church. And secondly, that he enters into our suffering and he calls us to trust him and to trust his Father. And thirdly, he stands with us in our trials and he gives us confidence that we have a great future. Thirdly, Jesus is our liberator. We see that in verses 14 to 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. I love that phrase, that he would destroy him who holds the power of death. Now, Jesus is the one who holds the keys to death. I mean, he's the one, life and death is in his hands. He's the one who has all authority. But what he is saying here is he's taking this, this uh, tool of the devil that is one of his greatest tools to keep us in fear. It is death. And he wants to use it to intimidate and to cause people to be anxious and fearful and to keep them in bondage or slavery. And Jesus comes along and he changes that. He came to destroy the devil. He came to destroy this one who holds that power of death and who keeps us enslaved in fear. He took away Satan's greatest threat, death, and he changed it. The fear of death is a real thing. Pastor Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage shared a story that I think is very powerful. It's about Somerset Maugham, who was a novelist, well-known, very successful in his day. And he uh, sometimes boasted that he had no fear of death. He's not a believer. He wrote about it in his memoirs, a book called A Traveler in Romance. And here's what he said. 
He said, there are moments when I have so palpitating an eagerness for death that I could fly to it as to the arms of a lover. I am drunk with the thought of it. It seems to me to offer the final and absolute freedom. There are indeed days when I feel that I've done everything too often, known too many people, read too many books, seen too many pictures, statues, churches, and fine houses, and listened to too much music. I neither believe in immortality nor desire it. I should like to die quietly and painlessly, and I am content to be assured that with my last breath, my soul, with its aspirations and its weaknesses, will dissolve into nothingness. He wrote that at the age of 90. Somerset mom had a beautiful kind of mansion on the Riviera. It was filled with all kinds of art and prized possessions that he had collected over his years. He had 11 servants working in his home at the time that he died. He was the envy of many because of his fame and fortune. But how did he really die? Well, in 1965, his nephew, Robert Mom, visited him. And here's what he said. The following afternoon, I found Willie, that's his uncle, reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. And he said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And he said, I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, he would say, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. And that evening in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung himself down onto the sofa and he said, Robin, I am so tired. He gave a gulp and he buried his head in his hands and he looked up with his grip tightened on my hands and he was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear and he was trembling violently. And Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. And suddenly he began to shriek, go away, he cried. I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead, I tell you. And his high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked round, but the room was empty as before. You know, those are not the stories that get told, are they? The stories of when people come to die, and it's not the angels waiting to take them to glory. It is the demons waiting to take them away to hell. And here was a man who mocked God, who lived his life as though he was arrogant, unafraid of death, and that was going to be just fine for him to end up in nothingness. But it wasn't true when he came to the end of his life. Why do we fear death? We fear the pain, although most deaths are not that painful. Most people die with comfort care, and they are well cared for, and it is not that painful at the end. We fear the separation from loved ones, saying goodbye. We fear the unknown, what lies ahead, we fear the non-being, or at least the atheist, or the unbeliever does, if they believe that uh, death is just being extinguished and there's nothing beyond that. And we fear eternal punishment. But except for pain and sadness, Christians are not to fear death. 
because Christ has removed its sting. And we know that we will be with Christ. And so we may fear that separation from loved ones or be anxious about that, but we know what lies ahead based on the promises of God. And then the final word picture we're going to look at today is the one of Jesus as our great high priest. And it's found in verses 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is our great high priest. And this is a truth that he's going to emphasize and come back to again and again in the chapters ahead. But he tells us for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Remember that one of the qualifications of a high priest is that he had to be like us if he was going to represent us before God. And because Jesus entered our world and took on human flesh, the scripture says that he is qualified to be a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful. He understands our needs. He understands our weakness because he was weak. He understands our grief because he knew what it was like to stand by the grave of a friend and weep. He understands our pain because he suffered pain, excruciating pain, when he was crucified. He understands our temptation even more acutely than us because he was sinless. And those temptations to him to take a shortcut or to find some other way to try and accomplish what he was sent to do were stronger than those that we experience ourselves. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. You know, Jesus doesn't look at us and say, you know, what a bunch of wimps that they can't resist temptation or that they can't stay strong. He understands what it's like to be human because he himself became human. That's powerful. That's comforting for us that we have a Savior who understands and entered into our world and knows what it's like to struggle with the human condition. He understands what's against us. And he comes alongside to help us in our time of need. You know, in the first few centuries of the early church, they were wrestling with Christology. And there were ideas that were brought up about Christ and his nature that needed to be corrected, that were considered by the church to be heresies going forward. And some of those views that needed to be corrected were like these. Like one of the views was docetism. And it's the idea that Jesus only seemed to be a man. He was God and he just sort of took on this appearance of a man, not in a real way, but just sort of seemed to be a man. Apollinarianism believed that Jesus wasn't fully human, uh, that he had a human body, but he had a divine mind and spirit. 
And so somehow those temptations, those struggles were not the same for him. Some even believe that uh, Jesus was the man, Christ was the Spirit of God, and that Christ entered into Jesus at his baptism, was there in his ministry, and then left prior to his crucifixion because God could not die. And so they were trying to work these things out. Another view was called monophysitism. The idea that Jesus had one nature, but there was sort of a hybrid, that the human nature was taken up and absorbed into the divine nature, and so it was different. And what the church affirmed was that no, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully God, fully man. That he has in this one person these two natures. And that he identified with us so completely that he could be a faithful high priest before God to make atonement for our sins. God is holy. God hates sin. God will not allow sin into his eternal kingdom. And so sin had to be dealt with. And how was it dealt with? There in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us. And because he suffered when he was tempted, he can help us when we are tempted. He's a wonderful Savior. I look at these four truths, and they ring home with such joy and encouragement and comfort that Jesus is our trailblazer. He's the one who's opened the way of salvation. That he's our brother that we belong to the same family and he welcomes us and he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That Jesus is our liberator. He's like that champion. He's like David going into battle with Goliath and he won the victory and defeated our foe, Satan. And Jesus is the great high priest, the one who understands our needs and who comes before the Father to intercede on our behalf. I want to close this morning with a statement that really um, brings us together. And this statement comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. I want you to hear it first, and then I'd like us to read it together in unison. Just listen to it first as I read it, and think about the words that are spoken here. The question is asked, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I with body and soul both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. And yea, that all things must work together for my salvation, wherefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Let's read that together in unison. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. 
Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Father, thank you for these great truths. Thank you for our wonderful Savior. And thank you for the joy that it is to walk with him each and every day. And God, would you continue to do your work in us to make us more like Christ and use us to be a witness for him in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.